0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the special edition season of Truth and Justice, Reply Brief. This season is like nothing we've ever done before. So before you begin this journey, I want to quickly explain what you're about to hear. Since 2015, on every season of Truth and Justice, I have taken on a potential wrongful conviction case. Our model is unique in that I record every week's episode in real time. As I'm investigating a case, each week I break down the portion of the file that I'm working on share the supporting documents, and invite listeners to weigh in and help with the investigation. We've had overwhelming success utilizing this crowdsourcing approach for eight years. The very first season of Truth and Justice, then named the Serial Dynasty, was dedicated to the Haman Lee and Adnan Syed case. At the end of Season 1, like many of you and the Undisclosed podcast, I also concluded that Adnan Syed was absolutely innocent of the murder of Haman Lee. As the years went on, Adnan's conviction was overturned, then reinstated, then overturned again, and at this very moment he is actively fighting an appeal that is attempting to put him back in prison. In the midst of this active case working its way through the Maryland court system, two working prosecutors, known publicly as Brett and Alice, decided that now would be a good time to produce a series on Adnan's case for their podcast titled The Prosecutors. You're about to embark on kind of a wild ride, and I want to explain ahead of time why you're going to be experiencing some of the twists and turns in the first few episodes of this reply brief. As Brett and Alice were working through their series, suddenly the internet came alive with people saying that the prosecutor's podcast was doing a full, unbiased investigation, and they have proved that Adnan is actually guilty. Which, of course, was quite a shock to me, since after investigating the case myself for over a year, the record seemed very obvious to me. Adnan is absolutely innocent. But I was interested in hearing another perspective, so I listened to their series. And what I heard was both shocking and infuriating. They were sharing what they were calling facts from the case file, but I knew from the time I spent studying the case file that these so called facts, some of them were made up, some were twisted, manipulated, lots were left out, and some just weren't in the case file at all. I was having a real struggle because the last thing that I ever want to do is insult another content creator's work. But they were doing real-life damage. They have done real-life damage. This is an active case, being litigated as we speak. And they are real-life, active, working prosecutors. And what I want more than anything in the world is for the Baltimore Police Department to actually reinvestigate this case and bring Heyman Lee's real killer to justice. But the only way that that is ever going to happen is through public pressure. And with their 14-part series, Brett and Alice had just shifted the pressure in the opposite direction. Through lies and manipulation, they convinced thousands of people that Adnan is guilty and that there is no other real killer. I didn't know what to do, but I felt like I needed to do something. So I reached out to the prosecutors and I asked them if we could do a public crossover episode where we could discuss the things that I found problematic about their coverage on the case. At that point, I was sure they must have just made some mistakes, and surely we'd be able to set the record straight through a friendly conversation. And initially, Brett agreed to do the crossover once they finished their series. In the meantime, I started this reply brief series as just a bonus for my patrons. I wanted to go through all of the evidence that they were presenting episode by episode and see what was accurate and what wasn't. And that's where things took a turn. A few episodes into my reply brief, they completed their series with a theories episode where they absolutely unleashed their hatred for Adnan and claimed that he was 100% guilty and they provided zero evidence to back up anything that they were saying. At that point, I reached out again, now more than ever wanting to have this discussion publicly and as friendly as possible. I wanted to believe that there must be some explanation for what they had done. And I wanted them to have the opportunity to share those reasons and also to defend their work. Because, I'll be straight with you, what you're going to hear here is me attacking it. Not their opinions, but their citations from the case file that are completely inaccurate. The last thing that I wanted to be doing was, well, this. Breaking down their episodes without them being in the room to speak for themselves. Nonetheless, they eventually rescinded their offer and declined to do the crossover. So, I just wanted to let you know that because you're going to hear that evolution in the first few episodes of this series. And ultimately, I eventually decided that the work that I'm doing here is important enough to not simply live on Patreon behind a paywall. The information needs to be public, and I say that because I believe that both Adnan and Hay deserve to have the truth told about this tragic case. So before we begin, let me explain just a few things. First of all, I have no problem with Brett and Alice's opinions on the case nor will you hear me arguing about their opinions. Everyone is entitled to one, but what you're not entitled to is your own facts. That's why I'm doing this, just to set the record straight. And I want to be clear that I fully suspect that some of you will listen to the series and come to the conclusion that Adnan is guilty, and I fully accept that. I do not expect anyone to agree with me for the sake of agreeing with me. My suggestion is that you listen to these episodes, read the case documents, I'll have them posted on my website, and then listen to their episodes and decide for yourself where you believe the truth lies. This is not about convincing you of anything. The purpose of this series, again, is to set the record straight and to let the actual case facts speak for themselves. And the last thing that I'll address before we begin is that while you're listening to these episodes as they drop, I'm also still publishing new episodes in the series on Patreon. The Patreon series is running about eight weeks ahead of this feed right now. So if you don't want to wait to catch up, you're welcome to join our Patreon and you can binge everything up to current, which is about, again, eight episodes ahead of where these episodes are being dropped on our main feed. But also, you're just as welcome to just wait and get the episodes as they drop here. You're all going to get the same content, it's just going to be a little bit behind here on the main feed. And regardless of where you're listening, make sure you check out our Friday follow-up episodes for each of these drops. That part is new and they have not existed on Patreon yet. Every week, on Tuesdays at 8 pm. Eastern time, myself, Janet Varney, and Zach Weaver will be fielding listener questions about the information covered that week live on the Truth and Justice Podcast YouTube channel. And those follow-up episodes will drop here in this podcast feed on Fridays if you're not able to participate on Tuesdays. With all that being said, Welcome to Season 14 of Truth and Justice, Reply Brief. Buddy, welcome to this special series of Truth and Justice. In this series, I'm going to be breaking down episode for episode the podcast The Prosecutor's Coverage of the Anand Syed case. Kind of explain the reasons why I'm doing this on last week's follow-up, but in case you hadn't listened to that and you're only tuning in because you want to hear this breakdown, let me explain why I'm taking the time to do this. It's certainly not like us here at Truth and Justice. After eight years and nearly a thousand episodes, to be spending time kind of critiquing or analyzing someone else's podcast. Although, interestingly enough, that's actually how we started. This podcast began when Undisclosed started breaking down Serial, and I started kind of working off of their episodes. But it wasn't to break down what they were doing, it was to take what they were doing and try to take it further. Truth and Justice got its start, back then called the Serial Dynasty, covering the Anand Syed case, the murder of Haman Lee. During my coverage and investigation of that case, I went from just some dude sitting in his garden shed making a podcast to what we have today, an audience that's grown to well over 100,000 people spread out across the entire world. I dedicated about a year of my life to investigating every single aspect of this case. As you all know, anybody who's listened to me before is very well aware of the fact that I came to the conclusion that Anand Syed is innocent, And Jay Wild doesn't know anything about this crime. At the completion of that season, I felt very comfortable that we had covered every angle, we tracked down every lead, and was very satisfied with my conclusion. Jump to this year and the Prosecutor's Podcast. The hosts are named Brett and Alice. I've actually had them on this show and True Crime Binge in the past. They decided to do a series on Anand Syed's case. And immediately I started getting tagged on social media. On Twitter and Instagram and Facebook through emails with all these people telling me that Brett and Alice are covering the case and they seem to think Adnan is guilty. And at first, that didn't bother me at all. Everybody looks at the case. They come to different conclusions. But as time went on, I started getting some kind of angry messages, people telling me that Adnan's obviously guilty, that I had misled people. That I had left things out and that myself and the team at Undisclosed and even Serial with Sarah Koenig, we had all gotten it wrong and a truly objective coverage by the prosecutors has proved that Anand Sayed is in fact guilty. And My first reaction to that was, I don't have the time for this. I don't have the energy for this. I'm not going to waste my time listening to someone else say that someone who I said is innocent is guilty. I know the case. I'm certain of my conclusion, and I feel very strongly about it. But then I kind of had a change of heart. I thought, if I'm unwilling to hear another argument on the case, to hear someone else's perspective and analysis, then am I truly being objective? So, a couple weeks ago, I broke down and started listening to their series. They are right now, I think they're around 14 episodes in, 12 episodes maybe, but I'm up to date. I've listened to all of them. They're not done yet. They said at the beginning that when they wrote out their outline, their outline, just the outline, not a script, for their coverage on this case was 35,000 words. And uh, they don't know how long it's going to take. It seems like they're shooting for maybe 16 or up to 20 episodes. So as I started listening to it, I quickly realized that Brett and Alice and I have fundamental differences about how we look at this case. Now, they've said at the beginning, they haven't declared that Ednan is guilty or that he's innocent, but it seems clear to me that they have already drawn the conclusion. And and I guess I can say they've already drawn their conclusion, whatever it is, because they've already written their entire outline. It seems to me that that conclusion is that Ednan is guilty. Now, they came to that conclusion, it seems to me, because we're looking at the case from very different perspectives. And as I'm listening, I've become frustrated with their coverage. And I do want to point out Here at the beginning of this whole series, that it's not my intention to be insulting to Brett and Alice and their podcast. It's not even really my intention to argue with them. But the reason I'm doing this is to make sure that we're all on a level playing field, to make sure that we all have all the facts, which is the goal they say that they set out to do when they started this project. My frustration came in when I realized very early on that they seem, in my opinion, to be presenting this case like prosecutors. Go figure, they're prosecutors. And this is what I mean by that. First of all, I don't think all prosecutors are corrupt or anything like that. We have spent these years covering cases and identifying and drawing light to crooked prosecutors, corrupt prosecutors, corrupt police officers. But I do want to make clear, it's not that I think all police officers or all prosecutors are bad people or that they're corrupt, anything like that. And I'm not saying that Brett and Alizar. When I say that they're presenting this case as prosecutors, this is what I mean. I want to go jump back to way back in season two, Ed Eight case. At one point, I had a discussion with one of the prosecutors on that case. And he told me something that was shocking to me. And then as I thought about it, it became less surprising. He said that I need to understand that when they go to trial, they don't care at that point. If the person on trial is innocent or guilty, that doesn't factor in anymore. Now, I'm only telling you what this particular prosecutor told me. I'm not saying this is how Brett and Alice think, but this is how this case seems to be being presented to me. And what he explained is, during the investigation, when the police are investigating, absolutely, they are set to make sure they get the right evidence and get the right guy. Once the arrest is made, and they start preparing for trial and getting things ready to take to trial, once they decide that they are, in fact, going to move forward with the trial, then the goal becomes to win. They have to, the way he put it, by necessity, they have to put aside any inner battles that they may be having about whether this person is innocent or guilty at that point. By that point, they've already made up their mind. This is the guilty party. This is the person who needs to be convicted of this crime. So then they start to build their strategy on how to convince a jury that that person is in fact guilty to obtain their conviction. That model to me seems like the way that this series was put together by the prosecutor's podcast. I don't think, and I'm not saying, that they came into this case already with the preconceived notion that Adnan Syed is guilty. I think that they reviewed the evidence. Upon reviewing the evidence, that's the conclusion that they came to, that he's guilty. But then they wrote the outline in their presentation for this series with the intent of convincing you, the listeners, that they're right and that he's guilty. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just pointing out that that's the way, in my opinion, it's being presented. Where I do have issues is where there are certain key elements that are being left out of their narrative. Now, that could be by accident, it could be by mistake, or it could be intentional. I don't know, and I'm not here to make that judgment. I'm sure that this episode is going to draw up a lot of emotion on social media as though... There's some big fight going on between me and the prosecutors. That's not what this is about. I'm not making any accusations towards them. I'm just telling you what I've observed. And as we go through this series, I'm going to point out the places where I see this and how I've come to that conclusion. You'll see places where they choose to read word for word everything from a transcript where it's convenient for their point of view. Then there are places where it's not convenient, where they will just say something and move on. They'll state something as fact. I'm going to give you at least one example of that just in their first episode that we're going to cover here today. In those cases, they're not giving you the full picture. They're not going to give you the full details. They're not going to give you the full transcript. They're going to pick maybe one element of it and share that and move on. So that's kind of where I'm starting with this is the fact that I'm trying to look at this case just simply based on the facts, what are they telling me, based on the experience and the training that I have, reading case files, analyzing witness statements, and examining procedures. Now, again, they're working prosecutors, so their level of experience and training and education and all of those things far exceeds mine. I want to acknowledge that up front. But I'm going to do my best here to simply break down the things that were left out or were maybe presented as misleading that has convinced people that maybe they got it wrong the first time around if they decided they're innocent. Now, granted, there are people that have thought Adnan Syed was guilty from the very beginning through serial, through Undisclosed, through Truth and Justice, through the documentaries, through the books, everything. They've always been convinced. And those people absolutely are loving what Brett and Alice are doing because they're feeling validated by it. I'm not particularly concerned with those people. It's the messages that I'm getting from people that are saying, I'm really confused. I thought I had this figured out. But the way they're presenting this, it seems like it's almost a foregone conclusion that Adnan must be guilty. And there are people that have emailed me or DM would me and said, I was convinced he was innocent and shame on you for doing that to me because now I've heard what Brett and Alice have to say and now I know that they're guilty. Those are the people that I want to address. Now, if you hear everything they have to say and hear everything I have to say, And you still come to the conclusion that you think he's guilty, fine, but you should at least have all the facts in front of you laid out in a way that makes sense before you come to any conclusions. Now, another thing that I want to address before I get into kind of the quick breakdown of their episodes and the places where I see some issues is another thing that comes down to a fundamental perspective in looking at this case. It is very clear throughout the prosecutor's series that they find it Almost absurd to think that there could be some kind of massive police corruption or cover-up in this case. Now well, they say that yes, sometimes there's some level of corruption, but there's almost—and I don't know that this is intentional—but there's almost like this form of gaslighting, something that I've seen when we study statement analysis that we see people do, particularly when they're trying to persuade somebody of something, is that they—they they try to people in general, not Brett and Alice, where they will try to make someone feel. Like, their viewpoint is so absurd that it can't be right. Literally cause you to question your own self. Like, how did I think that before when they've made it sound absurd? Uh, So, like, for example, maybe you're a person who thinks that Jay didn't lead the police to Hay's car, that the police already knew where it was. Well, most of the people that are in that camp think the police probably found that car, if that's the case, like shortly before they interviewed Jay, like maybe the same day or the day before. Like they had just found it. But when like they'll present it, and we'll get into all this in detail when we get to that episode. But when they present it, they'll say, look here a month before Hay was found, they had APBs out looking for her car. And look here two weeks before she was found or a week after she was found, you know, weeks before any arrests were made, before the car was officially found, look, they're sending out emails asking people to look for the car so for any of you that are thinking that there's like this crazy conspiracy cover-up for them looking for the car if that was the case why would they be making all this effort to ask other people to look for the car like now you're talking about a conspiracy that involves hundreds of police officers all throughout the state and then you hear that and you think yeah that actually that makes sense what was i thinking but the reality is for most people, that was never what we thought. That's never what I thought. I didn't think they they knew where the car was before Hayes' body was found. I didn't think they knew where the car was weeks before they interviewed Jay. I didn't think any of that. If anything, I think that the car might have been the trigger to them then moving on to interviewing Jay and going on. But we'll get into all of that later. But they kind of, on a few different occasions, will take this kind of hyperbolic approach where if you believe this thing here, they'll Kind of present the extreme version of that argument, point out how ludicrous it is, and then move on, kind of leaving you feeling like you were being ridiculous by thinking this kind of conspiracy or whatever the thing is. One of those things is police conspiracy. They acknowledge that, yes, sometimes there are crooked cops and there are conspiratorial things, these things happen sometimes. But then they take that hyperbolic approach and do things like I was just talking about with the car and talk about all these different people that have to be involved. And if you think there's a conspiracy, then it would have to involve all these people. So they're approaching this case from a position, from the way I'm understanding them, as though there is not a police conspiracy. And it's almost ridiculous to think that this could be a police conspiracy. But the fact is and where my perspective comes from, is this is the Baltimore Police Department in 1999. They are known and documented to be crooked cops, to planting evidence, to coercing false witness statements, to intimidate witnesses. They're known. There's literally been TV shows made about it. If you go back and listen during my season one, when I had Michael A. Wood on, Michael A. Wood was a Baltimore police officer, and he came on the show and explained that this stuff was actually happening. These are real things. The Baltimore Police Department at that time was extremely corrupt, that he had witnessed it. He had even partaken in or or been a part of, you know, with groups of officers that were doing these things. There's no question that it happens. And in fact, in this very case, the two lead detectives, Detective Ritz and Detective McGillivary, the two detectives responsible for this investigation, They themselves have been proven in court to have withheld exculpatory evidence. There's a list of four of these cases that that those two guys were directly involved in, where just like in this case, a conviction was obtained based solely on a witness statement without forensic evidence. And later it was discovered that that witness statement was false. It was coerced and That all of the people that gave the false testimony and statements that obtained their convictions and case closings for them were all drug users. That seems to be the M.O. of these two detectives is to get someone who's caught with drugs, who's caught selling drugs, who's caught using drugs, and to use that as leverage to get them to say what they want so that they can close their cases. Now, that's not to say that you all have to agree that's what happened here. What I'm talking about is perspective. To hold the position that it's ridiculous to think that Detective Ritz and Detective McGillivary of the Baltimore Police Department in 1999 could not and would not ever intentionally elicit false statements from people through intimidation, is extreme cognitive dissonance. You don't have to theorize that they might. You don't have to theorize that they would. We know that they did. They were caught four times. Four different cases. These two detectives were busted doing precisely that. So I think that we all need to approach this case from the perspective that it is possible and reasonable to at least hypothesize that they may have done just that because we know they've done it in the past. Right, now I'm going to start breaking down the first episode of the prosecutor's coverage of the Nancy Ed case. They titled their episode, Bad Dream. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the elements that they're talking about that are confirmed to be accurate. They're kind of things that have been accepted by everyone. I'm just going to kind of give you an idea of the tone, the things I've picked up on, because kind of the way I approached this when I went back, when I was preparing to record this episode is to almost do a statement analysis like I would from any witness statement. So I'm looking at the word choices they use. What things do they decide to elaborate on? Where do they spend their time and energy? And what things do they kind of skirt past? Plus, there are a few factual things in here that I want to make sure that we have clear on the record. So they start out their episode by explaining that They have watched all the documentaries, they've listened to Serial, they said they listened to Undisclosed, and you know they said they listened to pretty much every podcast out there. I don't know if they listened to ours or not, they didn't mention ours. And they said that they've read the trial transcripts. Now, it seems clear that they also have access to the police case file, and they mentioned several times the defense file. But they don't mention that in the beginning of the first episode, they just say that they had read the trial transcripts. So I don't know if they have – it almost seems to me that when they have a question about something that maybe they are Googling it and they're finding places online where a particular part of a case file or a particular part of a document or a full document is posted somewhere like maybe on Reddit or somewhere where people are talking about that particular issue. And I only say that because – As we move forward, there's going to be several points where I'm going to point out that what they said here is not true because this, and then I'll also show you where they got that information that, yes, there was a a line where this person said this in the second trial. But if you go back to their original interview, it says something completely different and they're only talking about the thing of the trial. I don't know that they are intentionally only presenting part of that or if, They just searched and found a post about that particular, with that particular one case document that supported the poster's claim. So I just want to make that clear. I don't know what the situation is here. They didn't say they read the case file. I don't know if they have the entire case file and they reviewed all of that or if they only reviewed the parts that supported their argument. But they begin the episode. They say, you know, where they got all their information and they kind of give the basics of the case. You know, that it was January 13th, 1999, when Hay went missing and her body was found on February 9th. And then February 28th was when Jay confessed and Anon was arrested. These are very basics of the case. And if you're you're listening to this, certainly I would think that you wouldn't be deciding to jump into the Hayman Lee murder case right now, eight years after it's been made very public, with a podcast about a podcast about some podcasts, uh, I you'd want to start at the beginning of this. So I'm going to assume that everybody listening to this knows those basic details of the case. One thing that I'll point out, where they start kind of laying some of this groundwork early, and this is a, a big conflict between the Adnan's guilty crowd and the Adnan's innocent crowd, is as they're going through. They say that after Hayes found, they pull Adnan's phone records. The phone records lead them to Jen, and then Jen leads them to Jay, and then Jay confesses and leads them to their car, and then Adnan is arrested. And then when they're going through all that, they say that Adnan was arrested based on Jay's story and corroborated cell phone data. One thing that they're going to do throughout this series is point out how Jay's story is corroborated by the cell phone records. And that's that fundamental difference I'm talking about where One camp believes J-Story is corroborated by the records, and the other camp believes that J-Story was created from the records. But I digress. I'm going to move on. I've got a whole bunch of notes here that i got to get through. Uh, They they next explain kind of who Hay was. They spent some time, and it was very nice. They, They explained that she was a star student, and she was a star athlete, and that everyone seems to agree that she had a bright future ahead of her. And then they start going through... Kind of some characters, and they say they want you to be able to use this as kind of an index because they're going to—they're th- throwing out the names of people and who they are, just so you know when they talk about them later, you know who they're talking about. They, of course, mentioned Adnan. They mentioned Jay. Uh, they talk about Don for a minute. They—they they point out that he was 20 years old at the time because some people say that he was 22, but he was actually 20. And they describe him as being very unlucky because he had been Hay's boyfriend for just two weeks before all of this happened. And then they quickly throw in that he was interviewed early, but there was no reason to suspect him. And they move on. So one thing that's frustrating to me about this, and I'm sure that many of you have the same frustrations about me, and they may have about, about me, was they, they, they kind of start out by presenting this as, hey, we're giving you just the facts, man. We're going to give you just the facts, and we're going to make sure that we do our best to get things right. And you know, they say they may make mistakes, they may correct things. But it's kind of presented as, we're just giving you facts. So I went into it thinking, I'm not going to hear a whole bunch of opinion on this, maybe till the end, I'm just going to hear facts. But there are these little crumbs that they kind of sprinkle in throughout their coverage like this. Instead of just saying, Don was 20 years old, he was Hay's new boyfriend, they'd been boyfriend and girlfriend for about two weeks. They say Don was unlucky that he had just become her boyfriend and that he was interviewed, but there was no reason to suspect him. So within the first 10, 15 minutes of the series, you've already been told that there's no reason to suspect. And I'm not saying there is a reason to suspect Don, but you're already being told that there was no reason to suspect him. Then they mention Jen. They describe her as Jay's friend and say that she was the first one to go to the police. Which Again, that's part of the official narrative. We'll get into all that later. But we definitely hear that multiple times just in this first episode. Whenever they're talking about Jen, Jen was the first one to go to the police. Jen led them to Jay. We'll get into those details later. They talk about Chrissy Vincent, or not her real name, Kathy from Serial. Uh, they mentioned Bilal and Mr. S from Serial, who's Alonzo Sellers, who they describe as the person who found Hayes' body and who was an early suspect. So it's just interesting. Just and these are th- throwaway lines. These are just stream of thought when they were when they were quickly going through these names. But for the Adnan is innocent camp. There are a few different things, with, especially recently, that Danan's conviction has been overturned. And Alonzo Sellers, in particular, was part of that because the current state's attorney's office said that he was not properly investigated and cleared to begin with. So there are people that think that the police never properly investigated Alonzo Sellers. But when they mentioned Alonzo Sellers, they mentioned Alonzo Sellers as he was an early suspect. And by the way, they're not wrong but it's just interesting to me that they make that that's that's definitely thrown in there the fact that Jen is the first one to go to the police is in there the fact that Don was just unlucky and there was no reason to suspect him all thrown in there boom 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 right away right at the beginning after they go through the kind of list of names kind of their index they move on to list things that we know for sure before they get into their timeline now before they start that Brett says here just kind of so we know where he's coming from he says that he didn't think much of this case. He said he listened to Serial way back in the day. And he came away from Serial thinking, yeah, he probably did it. And that was the end of it for him until now, when, of course, they're covering the case. And I also want to point out that when I listen to Serial, uh, this may be a misconception of people who think that I listened to Serial and said, oh, my God, he's innocent. That's not what happened. That's not how the Serial dynasty and truth and justice began. It began because I listened to Serial and I came away thinking what the hell is going on here? There's a million unanswered questions. I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. That's why I started Truth and Justice, or Serial Dynasty at the time. But after Brett kind of makes that declaration, he goes through four things that we know for sure. Number one, Adnan and Hay dated for a long period of time. It ended in December, and by January, both were dating new people. We can all agree on that. Number two, they made it all the way through the school day on the day that she was killed. It means we know that she was alive up until 2.15 when school got out. They say that she was supposed to pick up her cousin around 3.30. My memory is telling me that she was supposed to pick up her cousin at 3.15. So this is one of those things that, that yeah, and I and I haven't tracked that particular time down. I just kind of noted that just now as I'm reading through my notes. But if I'm right, and it was 3.15 when she was supposed to pick up her cousin, then For me, like when I'm doing a statement analysis, I'm wondering why wouldn't they say 315? Why would they say around 330? Could be nothing. We'll figure this out as we go through the rest of their episodes. But those are the types of things that I'm talking about when I say I'm kind of doing a statement analysis is when something like that jumps out to me, I make a note of it and I want to know was there a purpose? Are they laying groundwork for something? Is there going to be a thing later to where it's more convenient for their argument? for Hay to have from 2.15 till 3.30 before she was killed instead of 2.15 to 3.15 before she was killed. So just make a note of that there. And certainly comment after you listen to this if I'm wrong about that. But I'm pretty certain she was supposed to pick up her cousin at 3.15. In any case, they say that she was supposed to pick up her cousin, again, they say around 3.30 and she never made it. And they say that she was likely dead by that time. And number three, they say that Jay and Adnan were together on and off on January 13th, and it's not in dispute that Jay had borrowed Adnan's car and phone. Now, the car and phone thing are another thing that, in just for what it's worth, Adnan has always maintained that he didn't lend Jay his phone. He said that he lent Jay his car, and the phone just happened to be in the glove box, and Jay kind of helped himself to it. Now, we have no way of knowing if that's true, if Adnan's telling the truth or not. I just want to make sure that that's something else that's out there because we continually will hear throughout the series that Adnan lent Jay the most important things in his life, his car and his phone, when we don't know if that's true. According to Jay, that's exactly right. According to Adnan, that's not the case. And then we move on to number four. And this is this is where, literally, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking... Okay, this is interesting. I'm I'm hoping I'm going to learn some new stuff, maybe hear some new perspective, maybe because the defense file wasn't publicly available when I covered this case 8 years ago. Now it is. So I was hoping maybe there's some stuff in there that's going to be new information. Part of the reason I was listening. So as I'm listening through these first 15-16 minutes of the episode, I'm like, "Okay, this is everything's so, you know, those couple little things that I pointed out, I'm just listening." And then they say number 4 is J lies. Alice says that she says J lies. A lot. So I'm expecting that's like, okay, right. These are the things we know, and then we're going to move on. Because they hit pretty quick bullet points about Anon and Hay dating, Hay making it through the day, and Jay had the car. And then number four, Jay lies. But they go on for a long time about Jay lying. And this is right when I first started to realize, oh, they already know, or I shouldn't say realize, where I hypothesized that they already know where they're going with this, and they're laying some groundwork. Remember, my perspective is that their approach is the approach of a prosecutor, where they already know what the goal is, which is to convince the jury or you and audience that Adnan is guilty, and everything they say is carefully chosen and crafted along the way to convince you that that is the case. And we see this big time here in the first episode. So Alice says Jay lies a lot. And then immediately, her and Brett both start making excuses for Jay lying. And again, this is where I'm looking for, was expecting kind of a very factually based presentation. But instead, we get a long diatribe about why Jay's lies may be excused. They say that he has reasons for lying. And some can't be disputed, they say. One reason he was lying is because he was selling drugs out of his grandmother's house. They say another reason is because he's had previous negative interactions with the police. And another reason is simply because he's a black man in Baltimore. So they they kind of explain that, yes, he's lying, but these are three good reasons for him to lie. They go on to say that for those that believe in Adnan's innocence, they think those people would say, that he was lying because he was trying to avoid more serious charges, or just simply that the police were framing Adnan and they needed Jay's testimony. But they say that ultimately what we know is that Jay lies because his stories change and the evidence contradicts his story. Now, this is where things really start to get frustrating for me. So they just acknowledge that the evidence contradicts Jay's stories. And again, this is a point where I thought, okay, we're done with that bullet point. We're going to move on to the next, but no, we're going to keep going. Brett comes in and he says that some people will say that once you lie, nothing that you say can be believed. But he says that his rule is that someone can lie and not be a liar. And again, there's a fundamental difference between our outlooks on that. And again, I'm not saying he's right and I'm wrong or I'm wrong or I'm right and he's wrong, but I'm just pointing out there's a, we have a fundamental different take on that. If someone is lying to me, I consider that person to be a liar and I'm not going to just believe anything they say after that because they've already proven to me that I can't trust them. Brett said he describes it as his rule is that someone can lie and that doesn't mean that they're a liar. And they say that Jay is not unlike a lot of people who testify in cases like this, which was interesting to me. And in this this is, it's problematic for me, the fact that these are working prosecutors, the few things that they say after this. And again, maybe this is, just, this is just the way it is. But for me, with my self-righteousness over here and the work we do where we're trying to stop this kind of thing, I was kind of shocked to hear them say this stuff on the record on their podcast. They say that Jay is not unlike a lot of people who testify in cases like this. Expanding on that, saying that uh, people who were involved in criminal activity or have some involvement and don't want the police to know how much involvement they have. But then they repeat again, we want to make clear, Jay lies. But then they say that all of his contradictions are not because of lies. They're saying there are things in his stories that contradict each other, but he's not lying. They say that some of those contradictions are for the same reasons as all other witnesses. They say stress, time, and in the case of Jay, he was smoking marijuana that day. So from my understanding, what they're saying here is that some of the contradictions are basically accidental. He's under stress from being interviewed by the police, too much time had passed, and he was smoking marijuana, so you can't expect him to remember all these details. So Alice comes in, and I'm going to quote her here because I I want to make sure I get exactly what she said. But this is the part I was talking about where it it makes me uncomfortable to hear a working prosecutor say this stuff. She says, quote, all these things can create pressure that changes your testimony. And this is not unique to Jay. We see this in just about every single witness that we have ever directed or cross-examined in court. End quote. Maybe, kind of hopefully for me, she's speaking in hyperbole here, but it's concerning to me to hear that witnesses, as she put it, quote, we see this in just about every single witness that we have ever directed or cross examined in court. People who have contradicting statements, people who lie. She says over and over Jay lies, Jay lies, Jay lies, people who have contradicting statements people whose stories change and don't match the evidence, they see this in almost every single witness they ever put on, that, that does bother me. I'm not going to say that it doesn't. It does very much bother me that a prosecutor will, not once, not twice, but almost every single time put witnesses on in a trial to try to put someone in prison who they know have changing stories They're unreliable, they lie, and their stories are contradicted by the evidence. And maybe I'm just reading way too much into that, but that definitely made me hit the brakes real quick when I heard that. And again, that may be hyperbole, but I also want to point out in kind of an analysis of their presentation, how much time they're still spending trying to make sure to convince you, to explain to you why it's okay That Jay is lying. There's all these reasons why he might. By the way, it's not abnormal. Lots of people do it. In fact, almost every single witness we've ever put on is like this. All of these to me seem like they are intended to make you to kind of take your guard down. I think about it as if you were jurors, to kind of front-run the fact like you're going to hear some things that this witness isn't reliable. But I'm letting you know up front that that's okay and that's not something you need to worry about. It's perfectly normal. Now, after that, Brett jumps in and says that you have to treat Jay as kind of unreliable across the board. Then he goes on to explain their approach to this case. He says that it's a fool's errand to try and make sense of Jay's statements. Which, for me, that's a big problem considering Jay is the only evidence against Adnan that we literally are declaring up front, it's going to be impossible to make any sense out of the star witness's statements. But he says, he's kind of narrowing it down to a few things. He says, we're going to look at evidence that doesn't require Jay's eyewitness testimony. Good idea. And see if those pieces of evidence line up with four main points in Jay's statements. Brett says that if Jay is telling the truth about these four things, Then Adnan is guilty. So none of the rest of it matters. We're only going to look at and focus in on these four things. One, that Adnan gave Jay the car and phone that day. Number two, that Adnan had Jay pick him up after the murder and drop off Hay's car. Number three, Adnan had Jay help him bury Hay's body in Lincoln Park. And four, Adnan and Jay dropped Hayes' car off in an alley. So he says we're going to be looking for evidence of those four things outside of Jay's statements to see if those elements of Jay's statements are true. The thing is, if there was evidence outside of Jay's statements that those four things are true, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I'm curious, and because again, when I've started recording this, they're not done with their series yet. But I'm really curious to see if they circle back to these four points. Are they going to rely solely on witness statements, or is there some evidence that I'm unaware of that proves these points? Because from what I've heard so far, the proof of those points, the proof that Jay is telling the truth with those four points has been that Jay said those happened, or that those elements, without the details, those elements are consistent through some of Jay's statements, and that maybe... Jen confirms those elements. So I don't know where they're going with this, but they say in episode one, that's the plan. That they're going to look for evidence outside of Jay's statements that confirm that those four elements of his statements are true. And if that's true, then Adnan's guilty. I suspect that the way that we're going to confirm those things outside of Jay's statements will be Jen's statements and the fact that police found the car after Jay's interview. But we'll see. Then they move on. We're still in the window of the episode where they're explaining to you that it's okay that Jay lies. Alice says, quote, We absolutely agree that Jay's credibility is terrible. That's nothing new. Most prosecution witnesses are going to have flaws. Jay's credibility is bad, but so are most of Brett and I's witnesses when we go to trial, end quote. That's another... I feel like I'm overusing the term fundamental difference, but, th- but that's another, that's a lot of what this first episode is about, is for you to understand kind of where I'm coming from compared to where they're coming from, and that's that fundamental difference. I don't think that a prosecutor should put somebody on the stand who they know lies, who they know is not credible, who they know has said things that contradict the evidence, and that's maybe simpleton thinking, but that is my perspective, that that's a bad idea if the result of that not credible witness could be someone going to prison for the rest of their life, I think we should be more sure than that. They, who are actual prosecutors who actually work in the system, their perspective is that not only is that okay, but that's par for the course. And to wrap up this this section on Jay with, quote, just because you lie does not make you a liar, end quote. Now, again, in my, analysis of this statement, I'm going to call it, or this first episode, I went through and I checked because it seemed excessive to me. And was, so it's, it's about an hour episode. That's with credits and intro and ads. They spent six minutes, so over 10% of the content of this episode explaining why it's okay that Jay's a liar. In an episode that to me was supposed to be just listing the facts. So that's, again, right when I started listening, I started picking up on right away that this isn't about, from the way I'm hearing it, it doesn't sound to me like this is about just laying out some facts. They are prosecuting this case to you in the court of public opinion. You, the listener, are the jury, and they seem to be making an effort to front-run some things to try to build a case to convince you that the person they think is guilty is guilty. All right. From there, they move on to Ednan's story of the day. Uh, so they're taking like from his statements, and and it's kind of a Seems like it's a hodgepodge of what he told police, what he maybe told his defense from the defense file, and what he said on Serial. They kind of put this together and, and and created this sort of timeline of what Adnan says happened that day. They say that, that in Serial, they really drove home the idea that Adnan doesn't remember anything from that day because it was just another normal every day, that there was no reason for him to remember it. And they say, that's not true. He does remember some stuff. And that's the stuff that they're going to break down here. They go through Adnan's relationship with Jay. I'll, we'll talk about that later because I get into it in more depth, depth in later episodes. I will point out that one thing that they stress over and over and over and over again is that Adnan and Jay are better friends than Adnan is admitting they are. You know, Ad- Adnan has always described Jay as kind of an acquaintance. Someone he would get weed from and smoke weed with every once in a while. And they and I don't know what the purpose for it is yet, but I've noted it in most episodes that they point out that no way, these guys were too close. And, and here, when they're talking about his day, they, they bring it up right away. And that, well, he talked to him multiple times on the phone that day, and he was riding around with him, and he borrowed his car. So clearly they're closer friends than they say, to which me means nothing. The fact that you spent one day interacting with someone doesn't mean that you must be best friends forever. It's one day. And then later you'll hear that, you know, 12 days later they talked again. So clearly they must be much better friends because this is the second time he's spoken with Jay in two weeks. Uh, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that assessment. Maybe they were closer. I don't know the reasons they're giving to be sure that they are closer than they're admitting I disagree with. But I haven't figured out yet. It's just one of those things that I keep noting that they really keep driving home the point that Adnan and Jay are much better friends and are much closer than Adnan is admitting to. I suspect that the reason for that is, again, looking at this as a prosecutor trying to get a conviction, they're going to need to convince you at some point that Jay was the guy that Adnan thought was the right person to call to help him bury a body. And it's it's difficult to convince people that someone would call someone who was just an acquaintance to help them with something like that. They would call like their best friend, someone they trust, they ride or die. Maybe that's it. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. But these are just things I'm spitballing along the way. So Adnan's day, according to Adnan, he says he arrived at school about 745, had photography class, uh, and second period is when he gave Stephanie the stuffed reindeer because it's her birthday. Uh, you guys have heard that story from Serial, and we have heard it over and over again. He says that about 10.50 a.m., he left school and went to Jay's house. Says that he called Jay earlier, and Jay said that he hadn't got Stephanie a gift yet, so Adnan says he left at 10.50 to go get Jay, so to make sure that he got his friend. Because remember, Stephanie is Adnan's very close friend, and she's dating Jay. So he says his version of the story is that he was concerned that Stephanie was going to be upset that Jay didn't get her a gift. So he called Jay, found out he, in fact, hadn't given her a gift. So he took the car to Jay so that Jay could then get her a gift. I will say that I have not gone through transcripts to to confirm some of these times. I've, the, the focus for me of the times is after school. So they said... That Adnan said he left school about ten fifty. I'll take him at their word at that. So ten fifty leaves, goes to see Jay, and um, here we have a, another aside, another interesting thing. Whether so, again, now we're fact based. These are the things Adnan said, where he was when he went there, and then Alice Alice jumps in uh, very sarcastically and says, "Oh, that's a very responsible teenage boy." They have a laugh about it, and and. To kind of compare the two, she asked Brett, she says they've been friends for eight years, their spouses are friends. And in eight years has Brett ever asked her husband to make sure that she got Alice a gift. Uh, but Brett does does kind of defend Adnan here. He even points out during that kind he says, Well, no, but your husband's very responsible. Jay's not responsible. And he kind of defends Adnan and says that uh it to him, it does make sense that he might do that if Stephanie's his friend to go get it. So in any case, I just want to balance that out there that Alice does not seem to believe this. He was pretty sarcastic about it that thinks it's kind of silly to think that, that this excuse would be to go get a gift. Brett says that, you know, he could see that being the case. But then they move on and uh, Anon says that he then let Jay borrow. They say let Jay borrow the car and the phone so that he could go get Stephanie a gift. Jay then takes Adnan back to school, drops him off at 1245. Adnan says that he then went to the counselor's office to get a letter for college. Then he gets back to class. They say that uh, Adnan said that he got back to class around 1 p.m. He was about 10 minutes late. And they note that in the teacher's notes, he actually arrived back in class at 1.27 p.m. And Brett points out that that's an example of how everyone's times are going to be off. You can't expect people weeks later to remember exact times. Now, one, I'll say, I agree with him i you guys have anybody who's listening to me for any period of time will know that I'll tell you I don't expect people to remember exact times. That's why when you hear me interview people or when I'm doing statement analysis and I'm looking for indications of when something happened, I'm looking for anchors. Like I don't want to hear I got to class at one o'clock. I want to hear, well, I know I was back in class by one because second period starts at one oh five and I was there at the beginning of a second period, things like that, but Brett points out here that you know he's off there, but then he definitely excuses that and says that you know it's a good example uh, you know him saying he got there around one, it was actually 127 that's excusable because people don't remember times. I also think Brett's laying some ground front running some stuff here and laying some groundwork to start saying, let's not get caught up on the times people are saying now again, I'll point out, I think that's what he's doing. I'll also point out. I agree with him, when it comes to times. So it's not wrong he's doing. It. I just I'm just pointing out that that seems to me that's maybe a reason here we're putting in early into your heads. Let's not get caught up on times. And of course, you guys all know it's because Jay's times and Jen's times are all fucked up later. So what we're saying early. Let's not worry about time. So then we get into the critical period of time. Adon says that after school, which school got out, the bell rings at two fifteen p.m. He says that after school. He hung around the school, he went to the library and checked his email, and then he went to track practice at 3 or 3.30. Now remember, this all came out later, and actually I don't know where they got that time that Adnan said that he went between 3 and 3.30. I'm thinking this came from the defense file. Certainly I would hope that they're not citing what he said in serial 15, 20 years, 16 years later. But anyway, this is a very interesting part, and this is another thing that when I When I got through this part of the episode is when I decided that I want to make sure that I do these recaps and get everything out in one place to make sure that the information that's out there is accurate and in one place. So they say that Ednan says after school, 2.15, bell rings, he hangs around school for a bit, goes to the library, checks his email, goes to track practice around 3 or 3.30. Alice then jumps in and says that the track coach, Coach Sai, later says that track practice started, she says, quote, more like 4 o'clock. So she's correcting, or Anand says track practice starts at 3 or 3.30. She says no, Coach Sai says 4 o'clock. Now, there are times you're going to see throughout this series where Brett and Alice will take particular care and attention to read every word of a transcript and cross-reference and make sure that we have the full picture. There are other times like this or that is not the case. So first of all, to be fair to what Alice said for their timeline, that Coach Sai says practice starts at 4 o'clock. In the second trial, when Coach Sai was testifying in March of 2000, a year later, he was asked what time track practice started back in 99, and he said after study hall, approximately 4 to 5.30 or 6. So I want to point out they didn't pull this number out of thin air. I'm not saying they made it up. At that trial, Coach Sai did testify approximately four o'clock to five thirty or six. But what they didn't mention is that Coach Sai was interviewed by police on March 23rd, 99. Now track season ended February 24th, 99. So he was interviewed 27 days after track season had ended. The track season that had gone from November through February 24th, he'd been doing the same routine for four months straight. 27 days after the season ended, he was interviewed by police. They asked him that very question: "What time did track start?" He said, "Just like he did at trial, right after study hall." It says that study hall was from 2:15 till 3:15 after study hall they would change and go to practice and he said that he usually arrived at 3:30 it's very clear in his initial statement that he'd get there at 3:30 study hall's over at 3:15 they would get done with study hall change get to practice and even said that they would be notified if study hall was going to run long if study hall went too long so that they knew that people would be late track practice started at 3:30 now when we compare the two, they'll take the second trial transcript and say, well, he said approximately four, so it starts at four. And I'll take the initial interview and say, no, he said it started at 3.30. But what we should really be doing is comparing the two. What elements, what are the anchors? What do we know from both of them? What's consistent, first of all? When does track practice start? It starts after study hall. That's consistent both places. Right after study hall, track starts. We know study hall was from two fifteen to three fifteen. There was an hour of a voluntary study hall after school every day till three fifteen. So, the fact that a year later, when he's not coaching track anymore, he says that that it started approximately four o'clock. I'm going to take the fact that he also says there that it started after study hall. I'm going to go to his initial interview that it was done 27 days after the track season had just ended, where he said. Study hall gets done at 3.15, they change, they go to track practice, and that he gets there at 3.30. So that, of course, is all going to be very important later on. But for right now, this is just another example I want to give you because there were people that pointed this particular fact out to me. They said it started at 4 o'clock, that I want to make sure you have all the information. They didn't cite any sources. They just said Coach Side later said it started at 4. That is true. I want to make sure I'm clear about this. I'm not saying they're giving you misinformation. I'm saying they didn't give you the full picture in this instance that later he said approximately four. That's not what he said when he was first interviewed right after the fact. And then what's interesting, and this is going to be baffling. I've already got on the whiteboard a whole timeline drawn out because this is another thing that was frustrating me when I got in the later episodes because things weren't blending. So as they're bullet pointing through this timeline, They say Adnan goes to track practice. Coach Psy says track practice doesn't start till 4. And then the next bullet point, they say, Jay picked Adnan up after track practice, which they say ended at 4 or 4.30. Now, both of those things can't be true. You can't have track starts at 4 o'clock and track practice is over at 4 o'clock. You can't even have track practice starts at 4 o'clock and it's over at 4.30. Also, no one has ever said track was over at 430. So that's another one that jumped out of me. Coach Sai said in his first police interview that it's after study hall, starts at 3 30. He said, and I'm not quoting, but if I remember correctly, it said he said that that usually I I can see it in my mind's eye now. On the paper, it said has gone to six or six thirty, but usually it's over at five thirty. So track practice is from 3.30 to 5.30. Sometimes it runs longer. But you'll notice here on multiple occasions, they use 4 or 4.30 as the time track practice is over when non's picked up. But I want to point out that if you're listening to their episode and you hear them say that and you're confused how track practice can start at 4 and end at 4, neither of those two are true, in my opinion. The start time, I'll leave that up for debate because he said approximately 4 at trial seems to me that track practice started at 3.30. In any occasion, both at trial and in the police interview, he says that the earliest it ends is 5.30. Getting back to Ednan's uh, version of events that night, he says that Jay picks him up after track practice. They went to get something to eat. That's when he broke his fast. He says they smoked some weed together. And then he says that he would have been home around 7 or 8 because he would often take food to his dad at the mosque uh, before 8 p.m. prayer started. And then he said he talked on the phone to some people and he went to bed. That was his memory of the day. Again, they did not cite their source for any of that. So I don't know where exactly that came from. For me, I'm not I'm not worried about it. And I, the re- There's a reason why I can't tell you exactly when and where Adnan says that he was. Because that's not how I investigate cases. I'm, I'm not going to investigate based on where he said he was. I want to look at what evidence we have of places he was. Because obviously, if he's guilty, he would lie about where he was. Uh, if he's innocent, he's telling the truth. I'm going to look for corroborating evidence of that stuff. And we know in this case that we have all the phone records and all that stuff that we can, uh, we can backtrack and other witness statements we can track with later. Uh, but I don't know where they got that. Like, like to me, that sounds like what he said on Serial. I, don't, I certainly hope that's not the source of this because certainly we shouldn't be using an interview with a reporter from 16 years later as the basis of our timeline. Uh, But they do point out that although Adnan says that it was an ordinary day, that's why he doesn't remember anything, that it was, in fact, not an ordinary day because that was the day he got a phone call from the police asking about, hey, my kind of counter to that was, yeah, that would make it an odd day. But that happened, you know, at at six, seven o'clock at night. I think we're going to get to those times later. Getting a phone call. Let's look at this from let's say you are, in fact, an innocent person and you get a phone call. At seven o'clock, saying, "Hey, have you seen?" Hey, she was supposed to pick up her cousin, and she didn't show up. And you're like, uh, "No, I haven't seen her. I was, you know, whatever is, you know, whatever they say that you know he was going to get a ride. She left. He didn't didn't take the ride with her. Whatever it was. Well, that's the end of that. That may be memorable. Certainly, nobody at that point thought Hay was dead because a couple hours had passed and nobody knew where she was. But maybe a call to police was memorable. But in my opinion, not memorable enough for you to go, okay, let me just in case something terrible happened here, remember what I was doing at two fifteen, three fifteen, three thirty, what time did I get to track? What time did I leave? Where did I get that's that's not reasonable to think that based on a phone call at six PM, that that would then make you remember every detail of your day prior to that. That would be something a guilty person might do. And again, maybe he's feigning, you know, an argument could be that he's feigning that he doesn't remember anything. Uh, But a guilty person might know, right? Oh, shit, they already know something happened. I know that I was with her and killing her at this point. I better come up with an exact boom, 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 boom alibi about where I was at that day uh, and what I was doing. But for an innocent person, think about yourself. If you get a phone call like that, just saying that, hey, have you seen so-and-so, your friend, They didn't show up where they were supposed to, and you don't know. Like That might be concerning to you, but certainly you're not thinking, I need to account for my time. And particularly, remember, for them, one of the excuses that it's okay that Jay contradicts himself so much was because he was smoking weed that day, and Adnan was also smoking weed that day. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up. My goodness, this is way longer than, there's obviously no script. As you can tell, I rambled a lot. Uh, I just took some notes thought I would maybe sit down for 20, 30 minutes here and give you guys a quick breakdown. Uh, I don't know what this will edit down to, but I've been doing this for an hour and 20 minutes now. So I'm going to wrap this up for here. They do continue on. They, they start on a timeline at the end of this episode, and they're doing that through the use of Hayes' Diary, where they're kind of going through the relationship. They only make it to August of 98 in their timeline. Uh, at that point so it's the all they get to is she starts dating Anand, uh the whole prom thing where where Anand danced with her instead of stephanie uh she's in love with him and then in august she says that um, she doesn't feel like herself and she wants to break up with him and then they tease that that she changes her mind quickly and that's the end of the episode Um, so we'll get into more next week so with all that said Thank you guys for listening to this uh, breakdown. This is a very strange thing for us to be doing. As I mentioned before, that this, this series is going to exist on Patreon. Uh, this first episode I put out publicly, so I figure for those of you that aren't patrons, don't care enough to hear us rehash the same old case over and over again and don't want to hear it all. You don't need to, but I did want to put out this first episode to at least have everybody understanding kind of perspectives and and the fundamental pieces of how this podcast was put together. And I'm not saying that meaning, oh, well, Bob said that they have a fundamental difference of how they look at this, so I'm not listening to it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is make sure that you're mindful of that when you're listening, and then you make up your own mind. You decide what you think about their approach. But hopefully some of these things, if you've already listened to their coverage, is interesting for you. If you haven't, go listen to them. You know, I, I think that, I think that it's good for the same reason that I decided that I should listen is I don't think you should be in an echo chamber. I do think that if someone who these are very, very intelligent people, these are lawyers, these are prosecutors, working attorneys that have covered this case and came to this conclusion. I don't think that that should be ignored because you disagree with them. I think you should listen to them and see what you think and see at that different perspective. We should all have an open enough mind that that different perspective should be worth listening to and use it to check ourselves, check our own biases and see where that goes. So if you're someone who can't get enough Ed of Ednan's case and you're interested in what's going on and you're certainly open-minded about what's happening next and you're listening to the prosecutors, the rest of this series will be on Patreon so that if you're in the other camp that is, I don't care about Ednan's case, I didn't listen to season one, I'm not listening to the prosecutors, or I did and I'm tired of hearing about it, you won't have to hear about it anymore because this is the last time that we'll be talking about it here on the main feed. So if you want to hear more, go to patreon.com slash justice. It's at our lowest level, the $5 level. Uh, You'll get this whole series. Plus you get all of our other episodes ad-free. You get an hour of video content that's Patreon exclusive between me, Zach, and Janet every week. And again, if you're not interested in any of that stuff, great. Then we'll see you next week talking about a different case. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And I can't wait to continue this breakdown next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McAlaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay yomnick and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truth If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth.